Good evening, and welcome to welcome to tonight's event, um, which has been which is being sponsored jointly by the Creative Writing Program of NYU and Penn. Um, I'm William Matthews. I'm here to introduce the program quite briefly, and then uh, um, serially each of its participants. The New South and its writers, Where Did You Come From and Why Didn't You Stay There, is the title of tonight's program. The title might have been invented by Wendell, Fair, Wendell Berry, and certainly not faxed to Penn headquarters, probably stapled to an eastbound possum. But the rootlessness an earlier generation of Southern writers used to like to accuse the Yankees of now seems an American prerogative, a geographical manifestation of curiosity and certainly morally detachable from the shopping mall. And most American writers don't live where they choose, but they live where they find teaching jobs. On the other hand, the roots of the imagination are presumably portable, but thus inescapable, like the lice in the parable from Heraclitus. All men are deceived by the appearance of things, even Homer himself, who was the wisest man in Greece, for he was deceived by boys catching lice. They said to him, what we have caught and killed we have left behind, but what has escaped us we bring with us. Probably we'll find on hearing from this prolific and talented group of writers is that the situation varies from one to the next and that the New South may differ from the Old South in variety at least as much as in kind, but for further speculations of that sort, let's turn to the writers themselves. Tina. McElroy Anse's first novel, Baby of the Family, was published by Harcourt Brace Jovanovich in 1989. She writes wonderfully about family life. Here's part of a paragraph I, I, um, I loved. The boys talked lazily over the back of the front seat, not bothering to look at one another. They were just swapping loose talk to stir the air further, with Edward stuttering every now and then when he became excited by the prospect of the escalator rides. But it's the inner life of her heroine, Lena, that will stir readers most, I suspect. Lena was born with a call, touched by God in the womb, as it were, and she can register whole ranges of experience others don't know are there. There's no sure border between the natural and the supernatural for Lena, and she's isolated by her gift. McElroy Ansa graduated from Spelman College, took a job with the Atlanta Constitution that lasted eight years. She also worked a year for the Charlotte Observer. Since 1982, she's done freelance journalism and taught writing at Brunswick College, Emory University, and Spelman. Baby of the Family was named by the American Library Association a best book for young adults for 1990, and it's a fine book for old adults as well. I can't think of a better fiction about the unelected solitude of a gifted child in a family. Much of Lena's experience is harrowing, but there's something grounded and sunny about the story. She's going to find a way to thrive, a reader comes to feel. If the novel had carried her into her adult years, this reader wouldn't have been at all surprised to find Lena become a writer. Tina Ansa McElroy. Ah, good evening. Um, we have be been given an allotted amount of time, which is not very much for asking a writer to read from his or her works. Uh, but I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the subject before I read a chapter from uh, Baby of the Family. 
And uh, it's a little story I want to share with you because I assume that most of you are probably northerners and I want to give you a chuckle. Uh, the, the, the topic of, you know, where are you from and why didn't you stay there? I'm from Macon, Georgia, which is the center. My father used to tell me it's the exact center of Georgia and I, of course, imagined it being the exact center. He took me to a, a park uh, when I was a child and uh, showed me a fountain that told me that told me that was the geographic center of Georgia, and I lived in the geographic center of Georgia. So I grew up thinking, you know, like your family sort of surrounds you, your loved ones surround you. I always imagined the state of Georgia when I looked at a map, sort of surrounding me on all sides because I was in the the very center of Georgia. So I'm a very southern southern girl. I grew up in Macon, Georgia, the middle of, of Georgia. I went to school in the South and worked in the South. But I think I uh, imagined myself one of those Southerners who could just go anywhere and be just <laughs> happy anywhere, universal woman. And uh, I found out that I was not. My husband, uh, was a, at the time, was a television uh, videographer. And we moved around a bit, but mostly in the South. But then we finally ended up in what I consider, and this is where the chuckle comes in. And I won't be embarrassed if you laugh in my face, because everybody does. Uh, we moved to Maryland, which I considered the North. Uh, and everyone always says, the North, you know, Maryland, that's not, you know, far enough. And I always say it was far enough for me. Uh, we lived in a, in a place called Severn Park, and it was on the Chesapeake, on the Severn River. And I was okay with the snow, and I was okay with the neighbors who really, I didn't know their names, and they didn't care about me. And uh, going to the store, the little corner store, and I never learned the checkout girl's name, all these things that I just considered everybody did. But uh, we lived on the Chesapeake, and during the winter months, it froze. It froze solid. I said, I couldn't believe it. I walked out on the Chesapeake, this, this massive water, you know, and I said, oh, girl, you got to get your butt back south. This is ridiculous. You know, a, a body of water this big, it gets so cold. You know, I knew I was in the north. I started finding myself, you know, cooking bowls of grits for, for lunch and just wanting to see in the south. But the things that I think that I love about the south, and I am a southerner and I do love the south, are, you know, are the subtle things like seeing them a farmer that you don't even know when you're driving the back roads, 341 and I-17 and all those. And you see some farmer off in a field, some dusty field, and you can only see him like a stick figure. And all you got to do is punk, honk, blow your horn, and throw your hand up. And he doesn't know you, and you don't know him, but you can see that stick figure off in the distance, you know, throw his hand up or throw his hat up, you know. And you feel, I feel, the way I felt as a child when I learned that, you know, Macon was the geographic center of Georgia. I'd feel so protected, you know, I'd feel so, so at home. Uh, so I really want to, uh, that's, that's my chuckle, the fact that I thought Maryland was, George, was the north and I didn't, nearly didn't survive up there. So I did turn around and come back to Georgia in my home. Uh, tonight I want to leave it, read a chapter called Night from uh, Baby of the Family. Baby of the Family is a novel about a little girl named Lena McPherson who is a special little girl for a number of reasons. She is indeed the baby of the family. Uh, she's the only girl in the family. She has two brothers. She has a mother and a father and a grandmother. They live in a tiny middle Georgia town called Mulberry, an imaginary town. And she's special for a lot of reasons. She's the baby. She's the only girl. Uh, but she's also special because she's born with a call or a veil over her face, which, which gives her certain insights and certain gifts uh, in the occult, I guess you would think. She's able to see ghosts. She's able to tell the future. She's able to, as they say, know things, look at people and read them because of the gifts of this call, of this thin piece of skin, this membrane that some children are born with over their faces, over their heads, some over their whole bodies. Uh, and so she is, as in, the, in the wonderful introduction I was given, uh, you were told that she's 
uh, has an inner life, a very special inner life that's very much connected with the spiritual world. But in the South, one of the things that I remembered in growing up is that the spiritual world and talk of haints and ghosts and spirits and dreams and playing the number off of dreams and all that was very much a part of the natural world. And one of the things that I tried to do in my novel was to weave this, this, this uh, inner world of Lena's with the spirits and ghosts and premonitions into her natural world. Night. From the age of three, Lena had always woken at 4 a.m. to go pee. Her bladder's message and her response to it, even in the depths of a dream, pleased her. It made her feel responsible and older, able to control her water, not a baby who wet the bed each night having to lie there in the cold, wet, pissy-smelling sheets until morning. She wasn't a baby. She was a big girl. She was almost four. Didn't she wake up each night on schedule? Didn't she pad past her grandmother's room, past her brother's room, down and across the hall, all, to, all by herself to the bathroom, even though she knew what lived in the night? Didn't she remember to wipe herself instead of drip drying or forgetting altogether and bringing the smell of pee back to bed with her, drying on her inner thigh? Sure, she was a big girl, not a baby. But her family still left the lights on all along the hall and in the bathroom with the door open for her to see her way. At night, when the scaries and ghosts stirred up by her memories and the stories her grandmother told her, of old-time hearses pulled by black horses with ebony plumes attached to their heads, and of swarms of flies converging on window panes after a death in the house, and of the diamond ring-wearing cats sticking their paws into open fires, and of hats of all kinds came into her room to scare her, she knew she didn't have to stay and take it. Lena knew she could jump out of bed and dash down the lit hallway with her eyes turned away from the big mirror in the upstairs hall and knock on the door of her parents' room. They almost always let her in and allowed her to climb onto their wide, firm mattress and snuggle down in the covers between them. Her brothers, Raymond and Edward, teased her that she would probably be found some morning squashed flat under the weight of her parents, who had rolled together in the night. But even as a tiny thing, Lena knew that this was just jealous talk. Some nights her, her father didn't come home after closing the place at midnight, and then Lena and her mother slept together, lying close in the big bed. Jonah claims he got business to take care of tonight, Nellie would mutter as they lay there, but I know what kind of business he has this late at night. But no matter how many times Lena plunged into the darkness surrounding her bed and made it to the safety and the path of light outside her door, she didn't quite trust the dark. She tried not to think of it, but she knew that things with their heads turned backward on their shoulders and some with no heads at all roamed the world, and she was certain that they lurked in the dark because some of them routinely wandered past her bedroom door. Whenever she remembered the first time she had come face to face with such a creature, she shivered a little, no matter how warm it was. But as soon as her eyes opened this night, Lena knew that it wasn't her bladder or a wispy creature floating through her room that had woken her. It was a sound. She wasn't sure, but she thought she had heard crying even before she awoke. She brought her hand to her face just to make sure it was she who had been weeping, Not all, but all she felt there was the soft, downy hairs that dusted her cheeks. It was a small sound that she heard, not steady and even like a hum, but here and there in small gulps like a busted machine. And she knew immediately why she had heard it. It came to her ear because she understood it. She knew that sound. It was like her own cries when she was brokenhearted about something she wanted very badly and couldn't have. The sound drifted up to her on the night air from outside. The uncontrolled hiccuping cries came to her through the open screen window next to her bed, just like the call of the Bob White and her fat little babies who lived in the bushes at the edge of the wood. Bob White? Bob White? They called all evening and some mornings. 
Lena sat up in bed and listened for a good long time before swinging her legs into the darkness to go look for the source of the noise. She had no wish to go wandering around by herself in the middle of the night, but her desire to find the source of the noise was stronger than her fear of what she might encounter in the dark. The sound clutched at her heart and drew her through the house. That's Grandmama's moonflowers, Lena said to herself as she stood in the lit hallway upstairs, sniffing the perfume of the big white night-blooming flowers that her grandmother told her looked like ladies' fancy lacy umbrellas turned inside out in a sudden storm. They grew on shiny-leaved vines that crawled all over the walls of the old brick house. She didn't know how, how she knew that the scent emanated from those blooms. She had never seen the flowers fully opened when her grandmother said their scent was strongest. They bloomed after her bedtime. By the time she got up each morning and ran outside to look at the flowers, they were already curled, closed, and limp, hanging lifeless from their horn seed pod shells with ants crawling all over them. She made a quick promise to herself to go outside before this night was over to look at the legendary flowers in full bloom and to stick her nose in their wide open mouths and drink the scent she smelled now floating on the air. But as soon as she heard the sound again, the jerk jerking weeping that had awoken her, she forgot all about the moonflowers and continued walking down the lit hallway. She was beginning to get that sick, fluttery morning feeling she got in her stomach whenever her mother or grandmother woke her up before dawn to get ready for an all-day picnic in the country. It was a sensation hard for Lena to describe, to describe because it was sort of sickening, like she might throw up any minute, but it wasn't altogether unpleasant because it excited her and told her that something interesting was about to happen. Years later, when she first heard a nun in school speak about butterflies in her stomach, Lena screamed right out in class, that's it, and had to stand in the corner for the rest of the afternoon for being disrupted. She stood at the top of the staircase next to the linen closet door a good while, listening to the weeping, waiting for her eyes to become adjusted to the darkness and getting up her nerve. The staircase was, was a beautiful open oak structure that had a landing where the stairs turned in two sharp right ankles and continued down in the opposite direction to the floor below. Moonlight streamed in through the big multi-pane vaulted window, flooding the pale green landing, which looked out over the nearby woods and the roof of a simple roof beneath it, splitting the darkness with its soft shafts of light. A simple carved varnished oak banister ran along the left edge of the stairs. Lena always thought the banister should have been shinier than it was, considering the number of times she and her brothers had slid down its length. If it hadn't been the middle of the night, she would have stopped descending the steps one by one and climbed aboard the handrail for one swift ride down to the landing, then another down to the ground floor. But she didn't want to swish down into the arms of some headless thing in the dark at the bottom, so she walked down the steps carefully and slowly, watching her step in the space directly ahead of her. Each time she thought of turning back to the safety of her bed, the sound of the crying pulled her on. At the bottom of the staircase, she instinctively turned to the left and walked toward the soaring room door. Now that she was downstairs, the sound she was following was muffled behind closed doors, and she couldn't be certain where it was coming from, but she thought it was from the direction of the screen porch that stood under her bedroom. She opened the door in front of her and entered the sewing room, where it always looked like a small explosion had occurred. Spools of thread, bolts of various materials, solids, plaid, stripes, prints, and, and dress boxes filled with sewing patterns lay on the narrow twin bed and propped up against the walls and inside the open closet. On one wall, two sewing machines sat catacorned to each other under a long overhead light. One was an old singer in a sturdy weathered walnut cabinet with an iron wrought base and a worn foot pedal that her grandmother used. The other machine was also a singer, but it was the newest model they made in a modern oak cut cabinet. 
That's what her mother had asked for when she had taken Lena downtown to the dealership to purchase the machine for herself as a Christmas present from the family. I'd like to see your latest model, she had said in that haughty way her mother had of talking down to white people when she was paying in cash, which was almost always. Cash was something her mother always seemed to have. Lena had been with her, had seen her father bring in a brown paper bag full of money one day and throw it on the dining room table where her mother was cutting out a pretty little white Sunday dress for her. Without saying a word, her mother had looked in the bag, taken out a roll of bills which she had rolled into a wad and stuffed down the front of her dress into an ample bra. Her father had just laughed and peeped down, <coughs> peeped down the front of her mother's dress into the well of her titties with a grin on his face. Then he picked up the bag and went on out the door. Her mother, the long, sharp, black and silver scissors in her hand, had gone back to the tiny pattern on the table with the strangest little smile on her face. Two straight-back chairs were pulled up to the machines like soldiers waiting for orders. A pink corduroy cushion was in the seat of one chair, and a red Chanel cushion lay on the seat of the other, with another pillow just like it propped up against the back. Over in a corner stood the dusty model stand with a wide straw hat thrown on its shoulders where its head should have been. Lena had been told that it was made in the shape of her grandmother's body when she was 20 years younger, but it was only used as a decoration in the room now because her mother and grandmother fitted clothes on each other when they were sewing for themselves. Considering how her grandmother sucked her teeth at Nellie all the time, and the way her mother heaved her big breast all the, excuse me, heaved her big breast in heavy sighs at her grandmother, the two women usually made a pretty good team. In the sewing room, Lena walked especially carefully in her bare feet. She knew that pins and needles escaped from their paper folders and their pin cushions shaped like plump red tomatoes lay in wait at every step to prick her feet. Here, the sound Lena was searching for was louder and clearer. Now she was sure it was coming from the porch on the other side of the next room. The sound was nearly as strong to her ear as it had been upstairs in her bed near the open window. Moonlight glowing through the, spiking, the pine spiky needles was streaming in every window like candlelight. Through the open door to the music room next to the sewing room, Lena saw that the door leading to the screen porch also stood open. Still stepping carefully for fear of pins and needles, she moved through the sewing room and into the music room past the dark, beautiful dark wood piano. She took the opportunity to glide her hands across the smooth wood on the curved side of the piano as she walked past it. Without stopping, she walked on to the open door leading to the screen porch, and the sound was right next to her ear. The air out on the porch was so different from any she had ever smelled before that it stopped the child right in her tracks. It was as different from morning or evening air as it was from the heat of the day. The scent of the moonflowers, it had to be the moonflowers, was intoxicating. Crickets still rubbed their hind legs together, making an evening noise, but a couple of birds also chirped intermittently. Is it almost morning or still night? Lena wondered to herself. She half expected colors to be different from those she had seen earlier in the evening. The wicker furniture red instead of white, the bricks of the house blue instead of red. And this air feeling like this, nothing bad could happen to her. She had been a baby to be afraid of the dark, she thought. But when she looked around the porch and saw the outline of a figure stretched out on the wicker porch, she almost let out a little cry. The child's first thought was of, was of ghost, and she started to dash back into the safety of the house. But something familiar about the shape of the sofa made her stay. As Lena wound her way to the sofa, she saw that it was her mother who lay there, her forehead resting on her folded arms, her shoulders shaking softly. On such a gentle night, it was even more confusing than it would have been at any other time to find her mother crying on the, por on the porch sofa. But there was no mistaking the sobs that made her mother's shoulders quiver. At the sound of the child's footsteps on the shiny green floor, her mother sniffled a few times and turned her head on her arm to see Linda standing right next to her. 
Nellie's face looked as wretched as the, sound, as the sobs had sounded. All Lena wanted to do was to make it better. Little Lena reached over and patted her mother's face, wet with tears. This is my mama right here, she said. Her mother looked as if she would burst into tears again. Instead, she answered with a catch in her throat, this is my baby right here, and pulled the child up on the wicker sofa to lie snuggled in the curve of her chest, belly, and thighs made. Satisfied that she had done all she could to comfort the crying woman, Lena fell asleep immediately. Her mother breathed a few convulsive sighs and followed her baby daughter into slumber. slumber. They lay together that way until morning crept through the tall pines surrounding the house. Long after Nellie felt the warm little stream of urine trickle through the tail of Lena's nightshirt and completely soak the front of her shirt and shorts. Thank you. Smart Bell as a Princeton graduate and took an MA from Hollins College in writing in 1981. He has published six novels, most recently Doctor Sleep, and two books of stories, most recently Barking Man. His work is widely and justly admired for its elegant structures, various and memorable characters, and an empathetic identification with those strange and often misfitted characters. In the year of silence, the waves that issue from one character's fatal overdose are the novel's force. And the death comes mid-novel, and the chapters before and after it lead both forward and backward in time from that death. Time and loss are finally the most powerful of the book's many characters. But here's one of the human ones, just after the memorial service. Then she had slipped down from her stool and was out the door before Sinclair even had a chance to stand up for her. He felt an impulse to follow, but restrained it. A cloud must have passed away from the sun, for now light poured in the window through the vines, flooding Sinclair's corner like a liquid. It was wrong, completely inappropriate, but he felt very happy. Couldn't remember when he'd felt so good. It was like coming out of hibernation. He raised his hand and flexed its fingers in the, flexed its fingers in the sunlight, wondering at the intricacy of their movement. Why, it's just that we're still alive, he thought, regaining the words of the answer now. That's all that's wrong with us. Incidentally, the title of this no novel's second chapter, The Girl in the Black Raincoat, is, if I'm not mistaken, a sort of Holland's College literary in-joke, though. Though if I know it's an in-joke, well, how good an in-joke can it be? <laughs> um, uh, Mr. Bell, I will not... Uh, um, uh, read the uh, entire and rather dazzling Vita, but we'll tell you that uh, Mr. Bell is a Guggenheim Fellow for 1991 on the faculty as writer-in-residence of Goucher College. Madison Smart Bell. Which one has the LSD? Uh, I was going to start off by making a, a learned speech, but I decided not to. I've been carrying that learned speech around to every uh, feast like this for, for years. I never make it. Uh, instead, I'm going to read a, a very, very short story on the cliché southern subject of going fishing. Uh, 
It's a story called Hammerhead. Simsy hunkered on a dune, chewing a tail of her lank gray hair, watching her granddaughter wandering in and out of the last low ripples of the waves on the beach. It was low tide, the surf hit the packed sand, slap after muted slap. No moon, but there was enough starlight to catch the white foaming line of each breaker as it came in. Light on her feet, Mary Rose would move into each wave just enough to wet her ankles and then dart back. From where Simsy crouched, the dark slick of every wave seemed to curve up and over the girl before crashing down harmlessly far away from her. Simsy hooked a finger through the ring of her coverall zip and yanked it down. She shrugged out of most of the garment and adjusted herself to piss on the ground. Having scrubbed off her fingers in a fistful of sand, she re-zipped the coverall, took a package of drum from one of its many pockets, and rolled herself a cigarette quickly in the dark. The wind was coming up from the south, sweeping through the phone pole stilts of the long pier 50 yards away, blowing her hair across her eyes. She shook her head back, licked the edge of the cigarette, and put it unlit in her skinny lips. The saucer-shaped lights of the pier had begun to snap out one by one from its farthest end, and in the greater darkness, the hush-hush sound of the waves was deepened. At Simsy's low whistle, Mary Rose turned out of the surf and came running toward her, bare legs flicking pale against the wet-stained sand. Simsy lifted the duffel bag, a long, watermarked green thing Marty had saved from the army, touched the girl's shoulder with her other hand to guide her along. From the strip of parking behind the dunes came the motor of a gatekeeper's truck, cranking and failing, then revving up high. When they had reached the stilts of the pier, they stopped there and waited until the last sound of the truck had died off down the road. Away through the phone poles, the beach took a smooth curve off to the south, and though a few porch lights still burned widely separate, almost all of the summer houses were silent and dark. The wind dropped and the ocean became so calm that there was a long glassine silence between the moments when each wave turned itself smoothly under to break. Mary Rose had wandered over to the next row of stilts and stooped to paddle in the pool left in the depression carved by the suck of water around a pole. Simsy heard the girl catch her breath. The water threading through her fingers sparkled with its own green light. Simsy watched as Mary Rose, entranced, traced lines of foxfire from pole to pole. In the dark of the moon, she might have written her own name in the phosphorescence if she had been old enough to know how. Simsy waited a while. No hurry, hours to dawn. When the girl lost interest in the glow and straightened up, Simsy beckoned and then led her up the slope of the dune to a point behind the gate where the pier's platform was little more than head high her sneakers crunching and slipping a little in the dry sand. She stopped and hefted the duffel bag and rolled it onto the planks overhead. Mary Rose stretched up her arms to be lifted and Simsy swung her up, pushed her high until she could get hold of a single loose strand of resting barbed wire and pull herself the rest of the way onto the pier. The girl swiveled on her knees, pulled the wire higher so that Simsy could get under it more easily once she herself had shinnied up the pole gripping it with the soles of her shoes. She curves her back concave as a cat might do, 
passing under the wire and came up standing on her feet. A stone's throw back down the pier of the little bait shop was shuttered and dark, and through the slats of the padlock gate there gleamed one street lamp still alight over the sand-scattered parking places. Mary Rose rolled back onto her behind and stuck her feet out and looked up. Simsy got the little tennis shoes out of another one of her coverall pockets and hunkered down to give them to the girl. Mary Rose put the shoes on and slowly tied them while Simsy watched. The old gap planks were splintery, they both knew that. At home or anywhere else, Simsy would talk to Mary Rose as often and easily as she might have to anyone or to herself. But during these night raids on the pier, she usually chose instead to enter into the girl's strange silence. Maybe they would come out of it together when they left the pier one of these nights. But Mary Rose had not spoken a human word since Marty did it to her, and that was over a year ago. She was a year behind starting school because of it. Simsy had weaseled it out of Marty himself eventually. Her own daughter, Nell, was too weak for it, too drunk and drugged out even to notice there was something the matter with Mary Rose, probably. The only thing that had delayed Simsy from cutting Marty up into shark bait was the question of who would take care of a child if she, Simsy, had to go to the pen. To do it, she would have to be sure of not getting caught, and she was still putting her mind to this problem when Marty took it off her hands by getting his pig self killed in a motorcycle wreck. Done with her shoes, Mary Rose jumped up and trotted toward the far end of the pier. Partway, she ran the metal poles of the dead and lamps like a barrel race, wringing them softly with the palm of her hand. And partway, she skipped along one leg or the other, landing herself dead center on each plank. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Semsey walked along behind her, humping the duffel, which gurgled slightly at one end. They passed over the surf where it licked and slowly pulled back at the poles below them. Then there were only the long, slow rollers surging forward and returning a long way down under the cracks between the wide boards of the flooring. It was a very long pier. Toward the end, it widened out and ended in a blunted T. Mary Rose tagged the farthest railing and button-hooked back. Circling Simsy, he went on to the end before she set the duffel down. The tide was dead low, and the measured rush of the surf against the beach seemed distant now. So clear as it was, the Milky Way itself looked like a shelf of cloud. Simsy opened the duffel and took out a flashlight, bolted to a heavy battery, and flicked the switch. She set it on one of the plank seats that were nailed at intervals to the railing. Its lens was masked with a rag of sheet, which made the light too ambiguous to be very noticeable at a distance but Mary Rose came back toward it like a moth. The stubby fiberglass rod was on top of the duffel. Simsy propped it against the rail and then lifted out the heavy plastic bag of water and set it down in the wavery oval of flashlight. Mary Rose crouched down opposite to stare through the clear plastic at the two good-sized mullet and one spot-tailed bass swimming inside. The fish bunched head to head at one end of the bag and goobled through the plastic back at Mary Rose, who did up her mouth to mimic their fish-lipped expressions. The fish were fluid of changeable shape. You wouldn't know if it was really them moving or only the shifting of water and light trapped in the bag. Simsy dug out a kitchen match 
and struck it on one of her many zippers and lit the cigarette that had been glued in the corner of her mouth for so long she'd forgotten it. Smoking, she fastened the rig to the pole, knotting the blue nylon line. When Mary Rose lost interest in the fish and drifted away, she undid the bands on the bag and drove in her bird finger to hook one of the mullet through the gill. Kill you, she said to the fish in her mind. She refastened the bag, held the mullet high. You son of a bitch, you. The mullet was wet and slick, alternately stiff and supple in her left hand. From her right unfolded the long, serrated blade of her knife. She pushed the point in just behind the fish rectum and ripped up, then turned the mullet over and parted the new vertical lips with her fingers so the gut slithered out and hung, still attached. The fish moved frantically in her hand. Simsy thrust in one of the outside hooks behind its head and the other lower in the back where the barb cut through to the emptied stomach cavity. She cut the fish a few more times to stimulate bleeding and swung it out over the top rail and let it drop. No need for a long cast here, and anyway, the sharks came closer to the beach at night. Her cigarette was down to its last twist of paper. She spat it out over the rail and licked a fleck of tobacco from one of her front teeth. For a few more minutes, she held the pole, then set its wrapped handle in an improvised hole. When she got up, she shut off the flashlight so it wouldn't bother Mary Rose. After five or 10 minutes, the starlight was more than enough. When she reeled in, she saw something had cleverly stolen her bait. One hook was bare and the mullet head dangled free from the other. She cleaned the rig and pulled the spot tail out of the bag. Son of a bitch. The knife unfolded, the fish jumped in her other hand. Kill you. This time there was a hard strike as soon as the rig hit the water. Often that was how they came. Just a little one, Simsy could tell, but well hooked and madder than hell about it. She let it run just long enough to tire itself. She was not particularly a sportsman, not sentimental, not a fool, not to be trifled with, all the knots. She was not stoppable. The shark came up out of a wave at last and was cranked up through the empty air like a dead weight swinging at the end of a line. Just a little hammerhead, not two feet long. Either side of the head curved back more slightly than a hammer's claw, an eye at either, either extremity. The toothy triangle of the mouth was cut into the underside, the dorsal and tail fins wickedly slit. Simsy held it up at the length of the short chain leader and watched it thrash in the starlight. Its skin was prickly, like the fur of a petrified cat. At the end of its tube of flesh, the shark's eye rolled in a white ring of gristle, much more like a human eye than a mullet's. Simsy looked back. You don't know. She slapped the shark down on its back, planted her foot on the shank of the hook. You don't know my mind. A quick slash opened the hammerhead from tail to gullet, Simsy broke its jaws with a stamp, took back her hook, then impaled the, heart, the shark on a heavier rig, the new hooks big as the crook of Mary Rose's arm, traded up. The hammerhead was still very much alive, 
for whatever that was worth when she dropped it flailing and bloody back into the water. She stood tall on the plank seat, her knees bent slightly to meet the high board. The wind had come up and whipped through her hair. With one hand, she tested the slow thrum of Barad's tip. There was a last good shot in the pocket fringe. She killed it, threw the bottle out, high, wide, and handsome. It gave back no sound from wherever it fell. Only the waves were still rolling steadily down the, on the beach and the wind teasing just at the edge of her ear. Her lips were zipped tight, but in her heart she screamed like a banshee and with the same wild joy. Cutting the hammerhead, it opened a rush in her pulse, which washed away the horizon's boundary so that the stars and the sea ran together, the stars shining up transparently from the bottom of the ocean. Whenever she chose, she could dive into the water and meet the sharks and destroy them there. If everything was water, she could as easily fly as swim. There were no more distinctions. Ten feet under, the dying hammerhead twisted and fin more weakly at the incoming tide, spreading dark slicks of blood like oil into the water. Below, a big shark angled, reversed, burning a tail of phosphorescence like a comet. It turned upside down and spread its jaws, let the bright constellations of plankton rush over the triple rows of its teeth, and wondered way back in its tiny brain if this was what it wanted. Percival, Percival Everett took an undergraduate degree from the University of Miami, and in 1982, an MA from the graduate writing program at Brown. Since then, he's published the novels Suitor, Walk Me to the Distance, and Cutting Lisa, and the Book of Stories, The Weather and Women Treat Me Fair. Then, in 1990, two astonishingly disparate and virtuoso books, Zulus and For Her Dark Skin. Zulus is set in a warped future, disturbingly like the present, after thermonuclear war. The novel casts a greenish light on the possibility that the best humans can do for nature is to remove themselves from it. And for her dark skin, is a mordant retelling of the Jason and Medea story. Here's the wedding. Polydeuces is speaking. In Medea's eyes of fire raged. I would, have not have married, I would not have married a woman with such eyes. Taken her to bed, yes, married her. It was a pity such passion and such perfectly beautiful contempt should be wasted on Jason. Stupidity is a soft pillow. The ceremony went without a hitch. The golden fleece was hung up behind the altar. Medea spluttered out her vows as she broke a sweat. Jason said his words and then some. They were husband and wife, all the more frightening because of the slight bulge in Medea's middle. Side by side, they were a parody of something. Jason wore white robes, Medea black. The contrast was startling, comical, tragic, prophetic. The priest offered stale words to Aphrodite and a few others. The damage done, the party began. They were husband and wife, but as the author slyly reminds us, we, and we know the story, the ceremony went, quote, without a hitch, unquote. <laughs> 
and later the blood would flow. Mr. Everett is a protean, learned, and a terrific storyteller and a writer to conjure with. Thanks. It's, it's kind of funny that I'm here. I don't really think of myself as a southern writer. I'm from the south, yes, but I, 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 my home is the west. And to that end, I'll read a story that's, that's called How the West Was Won. And I, I kind of have to do a voice for this, so bear with me. I saw the smoke first. It was too much smoke to be just spilling out of the chimney, so I kicked my gray and hurried up to the top of the hill. More than a cozy fire in the hearth, it was my dang house burning to beat all get out. And there were men, seedy looking from a distance even, riding, and riding around screaming and hollering, and two of them were tossing more torches to the house, and two were shooting arrows which way, every which way into things, and one had my wife hung over his saddle like a rug. But she was swearing a blue streak that made me proud, dang proud. My dog, my poor hound, looked pitiful running around in tight circles like that, with that arrow sticking out of his side. I had a mind to ride down and say something, but I didn't suspect they'd listen at that moment. There were five of them, they were high on plunder. No reaching a soul high on plunder. I'd have to postpone action. It's not like I didn't do anything, I did unholster my gun and stand my ground. Well, they finally left with a showy and loud display of gunfire and horse brain that I felt was unnecessary and in poor taste. And they rode away with my Sadie and left all blue, all red, and still. I went down as their dust settled to inspect the scene. It was a mess. The house and barn was sizzling and popping, and the smoke made my eyes burn. They didn't leave a dang thing. Was nothing sacred? I asked the sky. Ain't nothing sacred? And the big, unforgiving western sky smiled big and said nothing. I looked around at the arrows stuck in everything, and I figured they had shot them all around to make folks think Indians had done it. But if they was Indians, why were they dressed like they were? What if they was Indians dressed like white men to cast suspicion the other way? Well, I picked up Old Blue by the arrow and started for town with him as proof that regardless of who they was, they was shooting arrows. And maybe Bubba, the black scout, would be there. He could look at the feathers at the end of this sticker and tell me if there was Indians and what variety. I was plumb tuckered out by the time I reached town. The heat had beat me down something awful. I nodded toward feigning, slumped forward in the saddle. Blue had slumped, slipped from the arrow somewhere along the way, but it didn't matter none as I was sure Bubba would just as soon study the arrow minus any fleshy deposit. I fell into the ground, and it sounded dusty even when I hit. No one really beat cheeks to offer me aid, and I figured that heat like this was bound to slow bodies down, but still I was struck with a sad feeling about, how, about the way folks don't care no more about their fellow fellows. Then Turkle was standing over me, the little red-headed barkeep, and he was talking, and he said, Kurt Marta, you no good freeloading, backsliding, dog-lipped son of a mud rat, you owe me three dollars. And I looked at him, wondering how a man could throw so many hyphens at, in, at such an obviously distressed human being of the same color. Re Renegades burned my house. Three dollars and I ain't charged you a lick of sense. Burn my barn too. Peterson over at the general store has got a few words for you after me. Ran off with my wife. You're taking advantage of our good Christian charity. You're not taking advantage of our good Christian charity anymore. Kill my dog. Killed your dog. With this here arrow, and I held the piercing device up before his eyes. He was on the other end, I said, but he fell off. <laughs> Turkles fell to sitting on his butt in the street. Killed your dog and he shook his head. What kind of heathens do we have in these parts? I looked at him and said, efficient. And I looked at the sky and saw the day was passing. I came looking for Bubba, the black scout. Well, you just came home and found your dog stuck, huh? Not exactly. I seen the vermin, and I seen them shoot my dog with this here arrow and laugh while he run round and round in front of him. 
Did you shoot at them? Well, they were out of range. I had my gun drawn, and damn it, they didn't ride the other way. Geez, Mother, I'm awfully sorry I laid into you after you just watched your puppy get murdered and all, Turtle said. It's okay, Turk. How's about you know something's wrong when a man's lying on the dusty, in a dusty road clutching a bloody arrow in his hand? Bubba's in town. Well, you're in luck, and he's in the shed behind delivery. Thanks, Turk. Turkle helped me to my feet and leaned me on my horse, and I thanked him again. Stop in later for a shot on the house, he said. Okay. And I led my horse toward delivery. Bubba would be able to look at this arrow and tell me everything I needed to know, and I tied my horse at the water and drank some myself and knocked on the shed door. Come, a voice called. I opened the door and stepped inside. The room was neat, a cot, two chairs, a stove, and black Bubba soaping his saddle. Where's your business, Kurt Martyr, he asked. Well, how do you know this ain't a social call? Your color and mine. Jesus, Bubba, it's 1871. Ain't you ever going to forget about that slavery stuff? What do you want? And I sat in the chair next to him. What do you make of this? And I showed him the arrow. He said, it's an arrow. Hell, I know that. What else? Been shot into something. He'd hardly looked at the damn thing. It was used to kill my dog. Well, he could do that. What tribe, Bubba? And he left off working the saddle, leather of his saddle and looked at the feathers. No tribe, he said. Indians take pride in their arrows. Look at how sloppy that tying job is. That's the work of white men. They took my, they took my woman, I told him. Well, I'm sorry, he said. That's an awful thing. And he stood up and he wasn't tall, but he was big. He looked big, and he poured water into a tin cup and drank. That all you needed? No, Bubba, I was running if you helped me find my wife. And then he laughed. Then he stopped, and he looked at me, and he laughed again. I need your help, Bubba. You're the best tracker around. I was begging a nigger, and it, and it felt my belly turning over, and I didn't like it. Let me get this straight. You want me to ride around with you, tracking down a bunch of violent white men in the United Goddamn States of America? Yep. And what happens when we find them? I shoot somebody and come back here and get hanged. I don't think so. I'll pay you, I told him. Kurt Martyr, you already owe me money. Well, dang, if people in this town weren't obsessed with money and remembering who had it and who didn't. And who didn't. He was right. I owed him money, but it wasn't like I could pay him back. <laughs> I'll give you my homestead. It's a full 52 acres, and I'll give you all of it. All of it? I'll give you six acres. Fifty. Well, I was into it now, but it was a matter of honor, getting my Sadie back. Come on, Bubba. Okay. Split it down the middle. I choose the line, he said, and he stared at my eyes, and I knew if I wanted his help, I had to agree. Down the middle, you choose the line. Write it down. He put pencil and paper in front of me, just so there's no misunderstanding, and I, I wrote it down. We'll need supplies, he said. Grub, ammo, extra gunpowder. I'm a little short on cash. But he grumbled and muttered something. Okay, but I'm keeping a tab, and you're paying me back. I really appreciate this, Bubba. And this Western setup I felt was in the long run destined to be self-defeating. Me and Bubba tearing across the territory in search of my woman facing death at the hands of engine impersonators. But I was bound to do it. That was the code, our code, the code of the frontier. And I left Bubba to finish his saddle and prepare for our long ride. And, if, and, if, and as, it, as if it wasn't enough that I had to assume an attitude of supplication to a Negroid individual and in so doing compromise my estate, I had also to gather supplies at the general store and put them on the black man's tab. I was under the watchful eye of Jan Peterson, the big Swede who limped. I was sorry to hear about your dog, he said. Thanks, Swede. I showed Black Bubba the arrow, and he said, if it was, and he said it was white men who did the big naughty. Bubba would know. He agreed to help you, so, so he agreed to help you. Well, I hired him. Then Peterson laughed. What you going to pay him with? Land. Is that legal for a nigger to own land? I don't know, but I hoped there was something to his notion. You got yourself a good tracker, though. Bubba's a good man. Too bad he's a nigger. He saved my life once. A cougar had me cold. I didn't have nowhere to run. That nigger popped out of nowhere and shot the varmint, right between the eyes. He didn't even wait around for me to thank him. But where would a nigger learn manners? Can't blame him for what he is. 
I put the sugar, jerky, flour, beans, and can of gunpowder on the counter. Peterson tallied it up. Bubba pays regular, too. Of course, he has to. He laughed real big, if you know what I mean, that is. I nodded. Might fare better with the bad boys if you took a mess of bullets along, he told me, and I, I agreed. I said, well, better let me have a box of shells, sweet. Uh, you would have thought Bubba would have put those on the list. Then Peterson took the shells from the shelf behind him and put them on the counter with the other things, and he said, best of luck, Marty. You go out and give those dog-killing bastards what for. I told him I would, and, I, and he smiled with me with his big yellow teeth, and I suppose I had yellow teeth too, but somehow I guess I didn't have to look at him, so they didn't bother me. <laughs> I could see the yellow smiles of the bad hombres who stole away my Sadie. Bubba said he needed to see the scene of the, of the incident, and so that's where we went first, me on my horse and the black man on his mule, and during the ride I asked him why for he rode a mule instead of a horse, and he said nobody ever wondered if a mule was stolen. Um, he said things like that, and I, and I asked him if, I, if a horse wouldn't be more useful in the tracking industry, and he said, tracking's a funny thing, Marty. It's not a matter of knowing where somebody's been, but of knowing where they're going to be. He was cryptic as all get out, but I felt pretty good having him with me. And as we, as we came to the trail that led the last mile to my spread, Bubba looked at me and asked, you know how to use a gun, Marty? Of course I know how to use a gun. Are you, are you good? Well, I ain't no trick shot, but I hit what I aim at mostly. You would never point a gun at me. Not unless you was trying to rob, kill, or violate me dishonorable-like. I looked ahead and the remains of my home and hoped Bubba wouldn't have to find out how bad a shot I was. Bubba dismounted and began to kick through the ashes. Didn't leave much, did they, he said. He knelt to look at the ground and picked up a clump of dirt. What is it, I asked. You got any red clay on your land? Nope. I didn't think so. Been around any lately? I shook my head. He dropped the clay and looked at the mountains. There's red clay up in a couple of those canyons. Hmm. That tells us what might have, where they might have been, but not necessarily doesn't mean necessarily squat about where they're going. What are you saying? Let's see what the let's see where the trail takes us. My bet is we end up in one of those canyons, and he pointed, and then we rode off in that way. We found a fire they had left and torn remnants of Sadie's dress, and I got sick and threw up. And Bubba gave me room to collect myself. He was sitting on a dead tree, and I walked over and stood by him, ready to ride on. He asked. Yep. And as we rode on, dust came on, and the and we, we made camp and sat next to a fire eating jerky and drinking coffee. What made you become a tracker, Bubba? Bubba, he, he a bit. What, chuckled a bit. What makes a man do anything? Then I stopped. You hear that? I sat straight up. It was a cracking noise, like a stick breaking. Yeah, I heard it. There's seven Indians over in them trees. They've been watching us close on to 20 minutes now. Why didn't you say something? Didn't see no reason. Are they hostile? I asked softly. Could be. They know we're no trouble. What's your point? Bubba just looked at me and he shook his head. And then he stood up and waved and faced the very tree in which he had said the Indians was hiding. Come on out, he called. And I thought he lost his Negro mind, so I grabbed him and tried to shut him up. And he tried to help a body, and he throws you to the ground. Come on out, he said again, and the red men began to filter out into the moon and the fire, the light of the moon and the fire. I raised an open hand and said, how? And Bubba looked at me, and at the, then looked at the Indians, and the Indians looked at Bubba, and then at each other, and they all started to laugh. How? One of the heathens mocked me. How come, said another. How about it, Bubba said. And the, <laughs> And the whole passel of them were rolling around having a big, hooting and having a big funny at my expense. Well, pardon the hell out of me if I ain't up on the current lingo of you ethnic types. That only made them laugh more. And the engine sat down and made themselves right at home, and Bubba didn't seem to be upset, none at all, giving, offering them coffee and grub that I had paid his good hard-earned cash for. There were six of them, and jovial sorts. And them and the nigger laughed pretty near all night. I listened for a while, but I guess I wasn't getting the jokes or something, because soon I was asleep. I'd snap to here and there and hear a red man chuckle, but that was it. Martyr, martyr, it was a Negro's voice dragging me from a sound sleep. Wake up, time to roll. I scratched my head and looked at the sky. 
Hell, Bubba, it ain't even good and light out. Um, that's the point, Margo, and I was to my feet soon, shivering with the morning chill, and I watched it as the black man packed his roll and tied it to his mule. That mule of yours got a name, I asked him. Yep. Well, well what? Well, what's his name? It's a secret. And he kicked at the fire. Secret, come on, what's the fool thing's name? You don't need to know. You ain't got no reason to call him. He looked toward the mountains and bit off a plug of chew. Jesus Christ, this is one exasperating negroid being. I pulled together my roll, and soon we were riding, morning creeping in, but the chill lingering. We rode steady until light was full on, and the day had warmed considerably, and the black man stopped the steady track, stepping his finger into them, measuring them, smelling them. He found a dead fire and felt around for a while, and then stood to survey the rest of the camp. Four men, he said. No more than four. He knelt by a spot on the ground and touched it with a stick. And a woman, maybe small foot, light. I was impressed. He looked at the mountains and scratched his head. You sure you want to go on? You turn in yellow? And he looked at me and said, hardly. He looked back at the campsite and walked to a, to a spot. This is where the woman slept. No big prints come to this spot. Hers go to the other spots. What are you saying about my Sadie? Hell, man, I don't even know your Sadie. So I got back on my horse. I said, come on. I ain't paying you to stand around imagining lewd imaginings. He mounted his mule. He started up a canyon, spooked a couple of deer, and I damn near leaped out of my skin. Are you okay, he asked. And I said, yeah. You really love your woman, eh? What? Sadie, you love her a lot. What are you talking about, I asked him. And he looked at me for a few seconds, and then he turned his attention to the trail. You know, chances are pretty slim we'll find her. We'll find her, I said. He was starting to get on my nerves. And what if she don't want to come back to you, he asked. What kind of dang, no fool, what kind of dang no fool notion is that? She's my woman. She'll be where I tell her to be. The scout stopped and seemed to sniff the air, his mule stepping forward to find hole on, a dusty, on the dusty slope. He scratched his chin. There's somebody up there, he said, and he looked at my eyes. Is it them? And he said, how would I know? I looked up the canyon and felt cold deep in the pit of my stomach, and the sun was beating down cruel on my neck. Maybe I didn't want Sadie back now that she had been no doubt spoiled by the heathens. Bubba start, started to turn his mule around. Where are you going, I asked him. Home. We ain't got Sadie yet. Well, that's true, Martyr, and we ain't gonna get her. If you want her, he looked up the trail. She might be up there, but you're on your own. If they are the bad guys, then they've got the position, and they've got the numbers. I don't understand, I said, and in the back of my brain, I had some good feeling about turning around myself. What if your wife don't want to come back, he said, coming by me. Wait, let's talk this over. He didn't say anything. He just rode past me. I unholstered my gun and shot at the ground in front of him, and his mule pulled up, and, and the black man turned to look at me, and he said, please, don't do that. You can't leave me out here, I said. He turned away, and I don't really know what came over me, except that I had some kind of blind historical urge, and he wasn't no kind of real human figure in front of me, just a target, and I raised my gun, and I put a bullet in his back. Catherine Hankler is the author of a collection of short fiction called Learning the Mother Tongue, a novel, a Blue Moon and Poor Water, and two collections of poetry, Phenomena, published by the University of Missouri Press, and I do from LSU October, next month, uh, a new book of poems called After Images. She has taught at the University of Virginia, at Washington at Lee, at Randolph-Macon Women's College, and currently at Holland's College, of which she is a graduate. 
Here's a brief passage from one of her stories. The mother, it has been said, could and did read through anything. Once, and this is true, she read through an earthquake. Of course, no one knew it was an earthquake. We believed it was the powder plant simply exploding one more time. And we saw the boasting sign turn back the number of hours of safe work in our minds. Her poems and fiction alike take a fierce and uh, <coughs> deceptively reticent pleasure in combinations of the ordinary and the atypical. For her, the link between nature and human intelligence is the love of making and discovering, on the one hand, patterns, on the other, disjunctions. Hers is a delight-giving and delight-taking, somewhat Nabokovian imagination, <coughs> wry, bittersweet, quite passionate. Catherine Hanklaw. It's nice to be here. I figured tonight I would be reading mainly to an audience of Southerners, expatriates. They saw the word Southern and came running. I don't know. Um, nonetheless, what I've prepared to do tonight is to give you a little tour through my home state, which I've never lived out of. And also, I'll read a brief uh, scene from a new novel. I've never lived out of um, my home state, which is Virginia, but it's a very weird place anyway. And mostly, Virginians don't identify with the South, and they don't really know where they're from. We're either from the North or the South or the South of the North. Um, but, but mostly, you grow up thinking about Virginia as its own entity and uh, you're consumed by it from the moment you live there. And I, for example, feel as though I've lived in the North and the South and um, in the Third World, Appalachia, and in the First World, the Shenandoah Valley. And um, I hear some of you laughing because you're from Virginia, but <laughs> for the rest of you, I feel like I need, I need to back up. And um, the story in Virginia, as you know, goes way back my family and everyone else's family in Virginia has always lived there. <laughs> in, in fact, when one has married a Virginian and lived in the state 20 years or so, you might become an honorary Virginian, but it isn't assured. And you can believe me when I tell you that people do discuss these things in grocery stores and other places about whether or not you have gained admittance <laughs> to the state. And it, you, you have to understand that, that the Southern obsession with family roots is exaggerated in Virginia to the point of absurdity. And you may have heard this joke about um, how many Virginians does it take to screw in a light bulb, or to change a light bulb, rather. And th the answer is that it takes two Virginians to change a light bulb. It takes one to do the work and another one to sit and talk about how good the old one was. And the only thing the joke does not tell you about Virginia that you need to know is how often those two people are found in one body. One of my best friends, for example, is a devout lesbian activist, and she gives impassioned witness to her politics, and in the same conversation, in the same breath, will tell the story of how her villainous paternal aunt tried to steal her inheritance, the family Bible which contains records back to the 17th century of her family. And um, she is now in the strange position 
of not being out to her family, but she is the holder of the Bible and she has to decide to whom it goes next. Um, so she's auditioning people without their knowing it <laughs> to try to decide. And she'll go into this from, and from length. I mean, you can't get away. She'll tell you about how her nephew, I can't use the right name, her nephew, um, Benjamin, um, might be good for this task, but she's not really sure because he's been raised in the Barbados right now, and she's afraid he doesn't have enough sense of the family history to, to earn the Bible, even though he's the only nephew. He's in direct succession. So you see this is a conflict. He should have it, but he, he doesn't know enough about um, Petersburg to... Um, Actually, it was Norfolk, okay. Um, but this is very common in Virginia. You can, any conversation can suddenly veer into family history and you may be able to tell that I'm at this very moment fighting the urge to tell you my own family history which concerns a link between Captain John Smith and Bohemia. It is a fascinating story, but I won't bore you with it now. Overwhelmed from the start of my education with information on my state's historic role in the creation of a nation, and especially with the myth of Lee, which dominated every discussion of the war between the states, that was Southern PC. One of my most vivid memories from fourth grade involves my public humiliation when I asked what I thought to be a relevant question because it was the 1960s. Diligent fourth graders all, we had just read in our Virginia history books about the first slave ships from Africa landing in the New World. The text told us, and I quote, the Africans leaped for joy when they set foot on the shores of Virginia. <laughs> I simply asked if that were true. <laughs> this teacher was under five feet tall. She wore horn-rimmed glasses and walked her French poodle Pierre every day after school. Her response was swift, her gaze steely. She said, everyone should be happy to live in Virginia. <laughs> After the fourth grade, I can't remember being interested at all in history. Perhaps because I was being educated in the disenfranchised corner of our state, the far southwest mountains where I was born, it's coal country, or maybe because history lessons revolved around wars and weaponry. The only significant women I remember t being told about were Bessie Roth, Ross, who sewed the flag, and Mrs. Lincoln, who was mad and responsible for Lincoln's assassination. It was heavily implied because she dragged him to the theater. <laughs> After a lapse of attention, I found myself, by virtue of living outside Lexington, once again in a curious lap of history. Lexington, of course, is where Robert E. Lee and his horse, Traveler, are buried on the grounds of Washington and Lee University. And there's some of my former students here tonight, <laughs> and they're, they're getting very red in the face. Um, Lee, after the war, the war, returned home as president of that university. For two years, my office was in the building next to the one that housed his office. And I can't tell you how many times I was told that. And I kept trying to get some resonance from it, but it, it kind of never happened. In the Lee Chapel, the famous statue of Lee, a large recumbent ghost of marble that gives the impression that its subject will awaken momentarily from a short nap, forms the backdrop for school assemblies and many community events. I saw soprano Donna Upshaw sing before the recumbent Lee, and I couldn't take my eyes off either one of them. I couldn't tell you which was more interesting, the things in combination. But these odd comminglings of the dead and the living are typical in Lexington. 
last spring I went to the VMI Museum to see an exhibit of photographs by Allen Ginsberg. After searching the expressions of the beat generation for about half an hour, I walked just a few steps away and found myself gazing into the glass eyes of little Sorrel, Jackson's horse, which is proudly preserved by taxidermy. I returned to the VMI campus a few days later to see Ginsberg himself give a stirring reading of the whole of Hal to a rapt audience of rats and cadets while seated before the Newmarket mural in the VMI chapel to war. Newmarket, you will recall, was the bloody battle in which the young cadet corps was called upon to fight like men. Seeing Ginsberg chant, don't bomb, don't bomb, before the mural was ironic more ironic even than what I had experienced there the previous year when a choir sang Silent Night in front of the Newmarket mural. The red of the battle matched the Christmas red of the men's ties. And I, I thought at the time that maybe that was Ellen what Ellen Glasgow had in mind when she said that what Southern fiction needed was blood and irony. But I have noticed in the last couple of years that these historic markers have started creeping into my work. And the brief little scene that I'll read you now takes place in Charlottesville. She went to visit him in Winter's Dead Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was in her first year of teaching prep school English, and he was stalking his second year of law school as if it were a wounded animal. He would nurse it to health or kill it one way or the other. Jessica arrived with a bouquet of spring flowers. In the hothouse university, the forced hyacinths, irises, and tulips hardly looked out of season. She placed the bouquet in an orange plastic cavalier cup on the dresser top, a practice she would maintain through many subsequent visits. Bundled in down and wool, Carrie took her on a long walk through town, her Friday evening history lesson of Jeffersonian ideals while freezing. I can't believe you grew up in Virginia and you've never been to Charlottesville, Carrie said. Oh, I've been here sort of once, Jessica said, as if it had been many decades earlier and she could barely remember. Carrie looked disappointed. I thought you said, I forgot, it was just some boring dance or other. I've never seen anything of historical importance. She hooked his arm. The rotunda with its ceaseless echoes. Stand over there and whisper, Carrie instructed. Her voice traveled up and over to him. I'm melting, I'm melting, Jessica said in her best imitation of the Wicked Witch. The he's McGuffey tree, limbs swirling like first graders on a field trip, serpentine walls at all. Jessica had met Carrie at the very end of her senior year. One of Carrie's first cousins graduated in her class, so he had attended the graduation party and asked her to dance. He didn't tell her he was in law school, or that would have been the end of it. Instead, he had written letters, visited her in the early fall, and now that she was visiting something was bound to happen, and she wanted it to. She liked his long fingers and his fine blonde hair that would thin without question before he was 30. He took her to dinner and back to his room in the house he shared with two other law students. No one else seemed home. Jessica watched him peel off his outer layers, coat, then sweater. He took their coats to the hall closet while she contemplated where to sit. He returned, carrying a bottle of white wine and two plastic tumblers before she had decided. Sorry about the crystal, he said, and poured the wine. They touched glasses, careful not to crack them. 
Carrie sat down on the mattress and leaned back, propped on his elbows. Jessica edged into the desk chair, the only chair in the room. From her high angle, she could see that the top of his head was already balding, that his light hair nearly matched his scalp in one area the size of a half dollar. Carrie told her in detail about his current law obsession. If a person declares there's an automatic stay, creditors aren't allowed to barge in and start selling a debtor's property off in order to collect. She found bankruptcy intrinsically boring. If she asked a question, she knew he would be compelled to explain further, lengthening, lengthening the conversation beyond her endurance. So she simply watched him talk, the way his lips moved, his hand gestures, the perfect modulation of his voice when he pronounced terms like redeem, reaffirm, surrender. Finally, he said as if she too were taking classes, not teaching them, tell me about your classes. They're 50 minutes long, she said, <laughs> wondering how Carrie could live without music in his room. No sign of radio or stereo, only school books and a tattered paperback novel on the floor that looked to have been used for a doorstop. Carrie raised his eyebrows, waiting for her elaboration. One is basic language arts for ninth graders who are reading Great Expectations, Jessica said. One is the mini course in Southern Literature. They're on Welty's Why I Live at the P.O. Then I have Creative Writing Club, Yearbook, A Pain, and another mini course in Shakespeare for seniors. What's that book doing on the floor? Jessica reached, but Carrie scooped up the book and slapped it on his desk. It's one of Weird Frank's detective stories. He's always trying to get me hooked. When will I meet these weirdos? I don't really know. It's only Frankie's weird. They're probably studying. We don't keep tabs. What are your seniors reading? Henry IV, Part Two. I don't think I've read that. More, he gestured with the bottle, then poured the glasses to the rim at her single, signal. Here is a man, Jessica found herself thinking, he will never tell me I'm beautiful or wonderful. She wanted to run from the room because while this thought formed, she felt herself gravitating beside him on the mattress. For a few minutes, they sipped at their wine, then he turned to her and kissed her. When she kissed him back, they gradually relaxed onto the mattress. The conversation was at a lull, or had taken another tack. He pulled her turtleneck over her head and expertly released her bra. She felt his mouth on her breast, and after a moment, she reached for his crotch. He was curled tightly and very hard. She, he stroked her back and kissed her mouth until their tongues tangled. Carrie rose from the mattress, locked his door, and stood above her as he unbuttoned his shirt, pulled off his T-shirt, stepped out of his trousers, and revealed his striped shorts with a bulge at the front that parted the fabric. Jessica had never seen a man in boxer shorts before. She could not stop an absurd thought from running through her mind, this is a man guarding his sperm count. <laughs> Beware of men in boxer shorts, Michelle had once remarked. Nearly before she could think these thoughts, Carrie had stripped the boxers and was ben bending down to her. He unzipped her black jeans and pulled them to her boots. Jessica laughed. Now you're going to have to pull off my boots, she said. Carrie tugged at the pointed toes of her cowboy boots. Pull from the heel, Jessica said, trying not to focus on his penis. It bobbed up and down when he tugged at the boots. Her boots came off in his hands, and she finished removing her jeans and underwear. Carrie kissed a line down the center of her breast until he stopped between her legs. He kissed her there for a long time before he entered her. By the time he moved faster inside her, she wanted him there. He finished and rolled beside her. After a minute, he said, you didn't make it, did you? No, she said. 
it doesn't matter. She wanted to ask him to come into her again, but she was embarrassed. Turn over, he said. She did it, not knowing what to expect. Carrie rubbed her shoulders and her back, traced her spine over and over. She felt dazed and relaxed and slightly afraid because she had turned her back to him. She wasn't sure she trusted him this much. In restaurants, she was the one who always tried to get the chair that faced the room. Since she was locked in a small place she'd never been before, it was dangerous, and she felt herself wanting to explore its dimensions and wanting simultaneously to escape. She knocked at the walls of the space she had found until she was out, safely away from him, from everyone. Jessica was crying, and she wanted to stop herself before he knew. Carrie had known how to find her out. She wanted to get as far away from him as she could, and she wanted, to live in, she wanted him to live inside her body forever. They slept back to back, then cuffed together. All that night, it snowed while they made love until their skin slid and their muscles ached. Saturday morning, they toured Monticello. <laughs> Joe McCorkle is the author of four novels, The Cheerleader, July 7th, Attending to Virginia, and in 1990, Ferris Beach. Ms. McCorkle graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she now teaches writing, and took an MFA in writing at Hollins. Ferris Beach is a funny, remarkably funny and sad novel about how different one's family looks to one during the different stages of adolescence. Two families, in fact, and they keep on changing during the whole process just to make the perception harder. Death comes to each family, too. Here's a brief passage. When conversations got bandied about in school, turning to the grotesque, Misty could charm the whole room with her coarseness. Yeah? Well, my mama got thrown 30 feet from a car. There were pieces of glass in her hair. Man she was with lost his head. When they pulled him from the car, his head fell off and rolled into the road. She could make the whole class go silent, and then she'd laugh that laugh, her skin turning a faint pink. That's how Misty spent much of the ninth grade, her last year at Samuel T. Saxon Junior High. She was the pale, orange-haired girl whose mother had died a tragic death, and I was her tall, birthmarked companion. I saw us as a pair to be pitied, though. Though, Lord, forgive me when I whine. Misty had convinced herself that we were a pair to be reckoned with and envied, and I clung to her hopes every step of the way. There's action aplenty in the novel. A fire that engulfs three houses, a slit throat, and, uh, mo and many more lurid details. But what speaks for the author's skill and maturity is how the book represents the action of time, the fullness, as we say, of time, time like tides and blood. Add to this a genially wicked eye for the essential silliness of social life, and you've got quite a novelist. Thank you. From time to time, I find those classic Southern symbols in my work. We seem to be on a roll tonight with statues, and so I'll tell my statue story. Um, in the center of my hometown was the statue erected to commemorate the Confederate dead, this little stone soldier. And very early in childhood, I had an uncle tell me that once a year, this soldier climbed down to use the bathroom. 
and then went back up top. And I spent much of my childhood waiting for this event to take place. I had somehow convinced myself that I was the delegated citizen to witness it all. Um, certainly within my work, the, the Confederacy comes up and the magnolia trees and the sweltering summers and the tobacco warehouses. But what I find to be most southern within my work and most unavoidably so are the references that come to me so naturally I'm not always even aware of their southernness until told. It's like not knowing you have an accent until you leave your home turf or someone steps in to tell you. Uh, like Tina, we considered Maryland very much the north, and I had cousins from Maryland who would come down in the summer, invite me to play cards, and then rig the game so that I was forced at some point to say the ace of spades at which point they would just fall into the floor laughing. <laughs> and I fell for that routinely every summer, I guess, and with the same energy I waited for the man to climb from the statue. Uh, but anyway, now that um, my education has been a slow one, but having a husband who grew up in New York and th thus acquiring an extended family of New Yorkers has helped a bit. Um, along with the fact that we did live in Boston for two years where I taught at Tufts. Um, but I still find that when I'm writing, I don't stop and think about all of these things. My characters still eat Calabash-style seafood, which means everything is fried in the exact same batter. You have no idea what piece of seafood it is until you bite it. <laughs> they shop at the Winn-Dixie and the Food Lion. They bank at First Union or Carolina Trust. They crack windows, cut lights, and mash elevator buttons. And after all that destruction, turn around and begin fixing everything. They fix the hair, they fix the dinner, they're fixing to go out. Um, I know in my second novel, I received my editor's letter with the manuscript, and she had circled where one of my characters said, well, I might could go. And my editor circled that and in the margin wrote, I don't think this character would use poor grammar, do you? And I wrote back and said, well, she might would because <laughs> I'm 25 years old and this is the first time anyone has called it to my attention that uh, there's something wrong with this. But aside from the various words and phrases, I find that something else very Southern um, in my work, and I often blame it on genetics and give my mother a hard time, is a particular way of telling a story, which is that you begin at point A, but there's no straight line to get you to point B. You might say, I can't wait to tell you what happened to so-and-so last night, but before I do, let me remind you, it was her daddy who owned the old hardware store before True Value came. And that was about the same time that this was happening in our family. And so you have to snake your way. Um, it requires a great deal of patience. Uh, but anyway, as an illustration of that, I have decided to just begin with the opening of a story that came to me in such a way. Quite often, uh, my idea is as simple as a voice of a character who starts talking and begins snaking around until a story is discovered.
and I thought that since I'm last on the list, I'd just begin reading until my time runs out or you start getting up and leaving. <laughs> this is called Carnival Lights. I never slept with Donnie Wilkins like everybody says I did. I could go and straighten it all out, I guess. I could sit down with the phone book and pick through the names of everybody I know, call and give my speech, my explanation about how they've got the wrong idea about me. I would say, hey, this is Lori Lawrence. You know, Mr. Lawrence, who's co-owner of that new grocery store where everything's all natural. I'm his daughter. I just graduated from the high school. I carried a flag in the marching band. I've helped flip the sausage patties at the Kiwanis Pancake Supper since I was 11. And then I'd pause because of course they'd know who I was. It isn't like this is some metropolis we live in. There are no more than 7,000 people here, and so once you figure in marriage and friends of friends, it gets real small. People don't even expect the new grocery store to make it. That's how small it is. Then my dad will be out beating the pavements, and I'll have to hear that old, this is why we're so proud you're going to college speech. There were only 78 people in my graduating class, and if I hadn't been one of them, like I honestly feared for a while, my parents would have died 1,400 times. Nobody needs to be told who I am. Everybody knows my mama is Sandy Lawrence. She used to be Sandy Leach. And yes, we have heard all of those parasite jokes. We made a bunch of them up ourselves. My mother is the little plump woman who always wears clogs and who will fill in and drive a school bus if somebody's sick. Otherwise, she's a secretary at the courthouse, vital information at her fingertips. We hear things over the dinner table that don't even get in the paper until the next day. Everybody knows she married my dad the same night she graduated from high school because she was afraid he'd be drafted. Everybody also knows that I was born exactly, give or take a day or two, nine months later. She says that though this course of action would not be good for a girl like me, it was the best thing she could have done in 1972 and she has never regretted her decision. She says, I might think the world was so very different 18 years ago, but within these city limits, except for the fashions and music, it was pretty much the same. The Lions Club was selling light bulbs and brooms, and the Civitans were selling fruitcakes. Her parents made her go to the Methodist Youth Fellowship, which is why she had left me to my own free will. She grew up with old parents and once said that she had decided to break that mold and several others. She didn't want us to be afraid to ask her questions, and she didn't want us to have to bury her before we got out of high school. Speaking of her old parents, Granddaddy Lee out of high school. Speaking of her old parents, Granddaddy Leach lives with us. You know who he is, old Herman Leach, who used to grow tobacco and now doesn't know what day it is or who he is. I've got a little brother, Bill, who's a royal pain. His way of getting on my mother's nerves is to pick on Granddaddy and call him names, even though Granddaddy doesn't know the difference. 
Daddy says this is Bill's way of dealing with the way my grandfather has changed. At least that's what he said over the holidays in between learning how to pronounce the various kinds of yuppie lettuce he was suddenly responsible for buying and selling. It seems people just want more than iceberg these days, he said every hour or so. <laughs> My mother said she didn't know why people were suddenly so hepped up on maroon-colored wilted lettuce, and she didn't know how granddaddy's fallen off could possibly explain why Bill had draped the old man's head with a woman's nylon hose and Christmas tinsel. <laughs> she also wanted to know where Bill got that nylon hose. He's just two years younger than I am, but you'd never guess it. He looks like he ought to be in the seventh grade rather than just out of the tenth. I sure wouldn't go out with him if I was a girl other than his sister. We look a lot alike, thick curly hair and compact bodies, eyes too big and sad for the rest of us. But it's the kind of look that goes much better on a girl. People say that for somebody so short, I've got a large chest and that I should have made the cheering squad and would have if I hadn't had that fight with Benita Inman when I was in the 10th grade and she called my daddy a fruit pusher. <laughs> Though hoping for a break in the business, he was still just manager of Food Line at the time. You can imagine how everybody took it from there and got to say in fruit pimp, gigolo, they made awful jokes about bananas and cucumbers. It was nothing to take sitting down, and I got sent home with one day suspension for fighting at the bus stop. A clump of Benita's hair was still in my fist when my father choked up in that old Chevette. The worst part was that I couldn't tell him why I'd socked Benita in the face and made her nose bleed down a blouse which she had broadcasted all day long was brand new from that new store in the mall where the mannequins are, pa are painted silver and don't have faces. <laughs> tell me what happened, Lori, my mother said that night. You can tell us the truth. My dad was standing there with her, and I made up some silly story about Benita calling me a name so ugly I couldn't repeat it. You just don't look your father or the woman who loves him in the face and say he's been the butt of penis jokes for two days running. I did not sleep with Donnie Wilkins, even though I wanted to. He's a nice guy, and I'm a nice girl. I mean, I've only had one boyfriend other than Donnie. I went with Mike Tyler my junior year for one month, the highlight of our relationship being the Sunday nights I exercised my free will, and we stood out behind the Methodist church during youth fellowship and kissed. I told him that if he could keep his mouth shut, I'd go with him. Otherwise, forget it. Ours was a brief relationship, which ended with him telling people that he had given me seven hickeys. Of course, that wasn't true. Only further proof of his inability to keep his trap shut. But still, there it was, the beginning of my reputation being sucked down the drain. Donnie's dad is the school guidance counselor, a tall, skinny man who looks like he's made out of tinker toys. It was in late November, around the time everybody was taking the SAT, when he told me that I had a lot of natural talent for putting things together and taking them apart. If you were a boy, he had said, and looked over at Donnie's mama who assists him at his job, her little half glasses swinging from a chain around her neck. 
I'd tell you to go to trade school, become a mechanic. I keep hoping that women's lib will be what follows the all-natural grocery store in my hometown. But as of yet, people are still doing the his and her types of things. Everybody in school made jokes about the Wilkinses being the guidance counselors. Her title is assistant guidance counselor. People said that really there's just one of them and that he, she has many personalities like in that movie, Sybil. I tried not to think about all that while I looked at him, them. Their button-down shirts, the exact same shade of blue. I'd like to be an engineer, I offered, or an architect. When he talked of my natural talent, it wasn't like he was telling me some big news I didn't already know. I knew the first time I ever sat down with a can of Lincoln Logs that I had this special aptitude. Lincoln Logs and Legos is why I stayed in the babysitting business as long as I did. I have a special aptitude, all right. I could look at him and know how many cans of Tinker Toys it would take to duplicate his body. His wife was harder to figure. It's hard to find a stopping point, so I think I've hit time. Thank you. So that you need not sit there wrapped in silence for the rest of the evening, I will thank you for coming. <laughs>